Welcome to a special episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust, as always, and I'm joined this week by the one, the only, Mike Lawson. What's up, Mike? How's it going, Dan? And may I formally welcome you to the nil era. The wiki wiki wild era. I'll, I'll take all of the above. This is a party. We are dancing on the grave of amateurism. It's just an all-out affair. I think states across the country with this historic day. It passed. We all expected it to. But yeah, the NCA has formally approved measures to allow all states, whether you're a name, image, and likeness state or you're not, as of today, July 1st, all 50 states, schools in 50 states, athletes in 50 states, everyone will be able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. Dan, you said it perfectly, whether or not you're in a state that has a bill already passed, or if you're in a state that it hasn't quite gotten to that finish line with their name, image, and likeness bill, all student athletes, no matter where you are, can take advantage of their name, image, and likeness. And the rules are that you must follow the state laws if you're in a state that has it passed. And if you're in a state that has not had it passed yet, where in New York, New York does not have a bill that is passed yet, you are free to engage in the name, image, and likeness deals as you wish. Unless your school adopts a policy of their own, then you must follow whatever school that you attend and follow policies that they have adopted in the interim until NCAA has proposed a bylaw. Or if there is a federal bill that does come out, then federal bill would take over as the supreme law and that everyone would need to follow. So currently, just to kind of lay out the scope, I mean, now, obviously, it really doesn't matter what state you're in, but we do have 13 states that have bills that are effective as of July 1. We have Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Mississippi, New Mexico, Ohio, Oregon, Texas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Pennsylvania just passed their state budget that had inside of it name, image, and likeness codification. So, Mike, stop bearing the lead with all this legal terminology. Athletes are going to get paid starting today, okay? Jordan Bohannon, Iowa basketball player, you know, he's doing a deal with a firework company. He's saying, come and join me, J-Bo, get my autograph, get some fireworks. I'm seeing Syracuse, your alma mater, offensive lineman, saying, where can I get an NIL deal? This is legitimately the wild, wild west. So this podcast, we should mention, we have Commissioner Mac Commissioner Rich Enzor back on the podcast. He was with us just after the Supreme Court decision. But, you know, this is a time for athletic directors, for conferences, for schools to figure this out. We don't pretend to have any of the answers. I'm reading, time, you know, experts in the field. No one really knows what to do. They're trusting sources like, you know, Woj bombs or Shams bombs. And they're trying to figure out what athletic directors are going to do in these non-NIL states. And even if you are an NIL state, you still are allowed to interpret the rules in a certain way because some of these state rules punt it to the school and to the conferences to figure out certain things. So what we did, you know, Mike and I, we put our massive brains together and we said, let's bring on someone who might know some of these answers. And that's Rich Enzor. So uh, I think Rich, as we'll get into, is a fantastic guest, transparent, open, uh, just kind of uh, talks in a straight up way. But just so everyone knows, we recorded this with Rich before the NCA formally passed their interim rules. So Mike, anything to add before we kick it to Rich? Yeah, Dan, just one thing to add. Rich Enzor is the commissioner of the MAC conference, and his focus is three states. We've listed a ton of states, and obviously all 50 states now has capability of name, image, and likeness, but his core focus is three states. That's Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, and we're going to dive into that with Rich. Just to specify, there are 11 schools, Canisius College, Fairfield, Iona, Manhattan, Marist, Monmouth, Niagara, Quinnipiac, Ryder, St. Peter's, and Siena. Why do we have Rich Enzor on the podcast? Mike and I, <laughs> we're a little fired up. I mean, this we're still trying to figure out where these rules are going to be across the land, whether conferences are going to have their own rules or they're going to defer to the schools. So, um, you know, the SEC is going to have some decisions, right? The Power Five are going to have some decisions, but people are, are really worried that this is going to have some recruiting ramifications, that all of the talent is going to collect at the Power Five conferences, more so than it did before. So here's Rich, and Rich will explain you know, what, what he thinks is going to happen, how he's going to use some of the Power 5 schools as an example. But it's very important, right? I think people are, are being mindful that this could lead to some recruiting battles and guys collecting towards Power 5 schools, or maybe in the alternative, guys staying for four years and staying a little bit longer because they're able to get paid in some sense. But it's important, right? This is the economics of college sports. The commissioner of the conference, Rich, and Rich happens to be a lawyer. He's the uh, longest tenured Division One commissioner in the country. He started in August of 1988. 
let's just say Rich is a very senior, experienced guy. He's a, the Sports Lawyers Association is a senior member. He's really in the room for all these high-level conversations. So I can't really imagine a better guest for this conversation. So with that said, we will kick it to Rich Enzor. Welcome, Rich Enzor, to Conduct Detrimental. How are you? Good today. How have you been, Dan? We've been great. You know, uh, I, I was telling you offline, uh, our, your last appearance on the podcast came at a very interesting time. It was after uh, oral argument on the NCA versus Austin case. So that was uh, closer to the beginning. That worked out well, huh? <laughs> uh, it did, depending on your perspective. It, it did work out. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Huh? That episode, uh, you know, we got a, a ton of feedback from listeners, you know, that how interesting it was to hear from your perspective as a conference commissioner, you know, as the longest tenured conference commissioner, as a lawyer who's seen a number of things in, in your in your tenure. So we, we wanted to bring you back on. Obviously, we have a big date on the calendar that's that's this week, depending on when you're listening to this. That's July 1st. But we also have the Supreme Court decision, state legislation being passed everywhere, everywhere, the Senate NIL hearings. You know, we have the Kaplan report coming out. So a lot of issues in college sports. And we thought it was only appropriate to bring you back on for what we're calling is the special July 1st episode. So oh, glad um, to be here. Let's start with this. We have July 1st, Thursday, that everyone is circling as this landmark day in sports history. So I'll, I'll leave it to you as an open, you know, it's just an open question. What are your thoughts on July 1st and kind of what, what this means in the history of college sports? Well, it's certainly been an interesting few weeks in college sports. And July 1 is a date that the NCAA is designated for the new NIL laws, bylaws to be applied. So uh, as you well know, we have anywhere from 11 to 15 states that are in one stage or another of passing uh, statutes that grant certain NIL, name, image, and likeness rights to the athletes, despite any NCAA prohibitions on it. As a result of that legislation and the Supreme Court decision in the Austin case, the NCAA has suspended all amateurism rules relative to NIL rights and has put in an interim policy that basically tells us that if you're in a state with a, with a statute, you got to follow it with a couple of narrow prohibitions. And then if you're in a state without a statute, it's up to the institution to define what NIL rights are going to provide their athletes, again, with a couple of narrow prohibitions. So it is a momentous time. I only think it's going to become more interesting as we move into the summer and states try to catch up. The NCA tries to evaluate where we are on our amateurism rules. And we all wait to see if Congress will act and provide some kind of national law on this area so we could preempt the many state statutes and at least have a uniform standard across all 50 states. So it's funny, your understanding of how this will shake out is kind of like social media is right now. No one is really sure. I keep hearing the term wild, wild west thrown around. There's just no historical precedent to kind of give us some guidance of what this will be, especially at the collegiate level where the rules have, you know, the rules of amateurism have essentially remained the same for about a century. So when they're lifting their, uh, NCAA says they're lifting their rules on amateurism, what's what's left, right? That's that's what the wild, wild west is. That's what, you know, uh like martial law is, we don't really know how that will shake out. So um, I just want to kind of focus in on, you know, this July 1st, and then we'll kind of open it up. For about a year and a half, starting in September of 2019, the NCA had this build up, right? California passes fair pay to play at the end of 2019. Uh, yes, and then over the next yeah. year and a half, right around there, different states start to pass laws. So de depending on when you're listening to this, there's any number of, I think it's around 14 or 15 states that will be effective. Their NIL laws on July 1st. And then I think total, there's about 25, 26 states that have NIL laws in the books. And obviously that number keeps changing every day. States are moving up their effective dates. So I guess I want to, I'm going to phrase it to you like this. And I, and I'm a follower of yours on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I see you sharing a lot of articles, you know, that, that maybe are a little bit critical of the NCAA. So, you know, just from an outside perspective, I don't think this last month has been fantastic for the NCAA, you know, especially, you know, how Mark Emmert came off at the Senate NIL hearings. Obviously, the, the Austin decision wasn't great. And, you know, uh, I saw Cory Booker's statement yesterday. I know you believe you sent that out on, on Twitter as well. Sure, yeah. Just a little bit too late. So 
I, I want to hand it to you. You know, you're, you know, again, the longest tenured commissioner in, in, uh, in college sports since the 80s. What are your thoughts overall on the NCAA's handling of this, if they could have done something differently or if they still can do something differently? Well, the NCAA is a huge bureaucracy, right? You, you can't, we have a thousand member schools. You never, you always have to start with that. And even within Division One, we've got 360 or so members. So whenever you try to build, you know, some type of major legislative change, it's difficult. And you need strong leadership on the top to drive it. And frankly, I think there's a case to be made that we failed in that regard. It's uh, whether it's uh, Mark's efforts or the Board of Governors, which controls litigation. You know, in September of 19, they had an opportunity when the, you know, I think it's called the uh, Fair Pay Act was passed by California. They might have gone after that because that's that's a much broader bill than NIL rights. It, it provides a lot of other benefits. That really guts amateurism, period, in college athletics. So while I've always favored NIL rights for athletes, you know, there are other elements to that bill that are, are troublesome. And, and some of the bills, even that, like Booker's, uh, Senator Booker is pushing it in the Congress, are you know they're they're going they're starting to push into an employment relationship between athletes and colleges and i don't think we want to go there for a lot of reasons tax reasons and you know uh, workman's comp reasons all those types of issues i do want i do want to see our athletes remain college athletes not professional athletes so we had a chance in 19 to do that i know they put a lot of effort into thinking about and building a case for, uh, to file a suit, and then they backed away from it for whatever reasons, I don't know. And since then, we've been playing this game of what rights can we grant? How soon can we grant them? And it's a slow process when you got 300 plus different opinions in D1. And frankly, without the leadership of the Autonomy Five conferences, I'm not sure we even be at this point in time. They finally had to step in and say, no, this is the direction we're going. We got to delink all these regs right now, try to sort out how the state legislatures are, are handling these things. Let the courts finalize what other, what any other, you know, scriptures they're going to send our way. Cause we still have other cases in the system. There's another uh, NIL type case in front of the Wilkins court in California right now that we lost a ruling on earlier this week. And in the interim, maybe Congress will step up but, you know, NCA leadership promised us a congressional bill and, and we haven't gotten it, you know, so that hasn't happened. You know, they, they went that route rather than the litigation route. And it, that's not happened. So it, I think we've not done a grand job. And I questioned uh, last week, you know, the antitrust advice we were getting even on the current bills, because if we're using the same firms that just uh, managed the Austin case, you know, a 9-0 decision is pretty dramatic in, in the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't think it's working. So, and I got a little pushback from our leadership on that one, but, uh, you know, I'm always a critic on, and it's just my nature. And we run a great conference here on the MAC. We don't consider ourselves on the level of the A5. But uh, I think at some point in time, you have to raise your voice and say, what exactly are we doing? And I think that's what's happened. The 32 conferences recognize at this point we had to move as a group rather than wait on the NCA leadership to take the reins and get us to some kind of solution. I guess just a quick follow and I'll turn it over to Mike. I know he has a lot. You kind of took it. I mean, I, I, it was my thought, right? You're appealing a decision from the Ninth Circuit, okay? It's a loss, right? Maybe it's not the biggest loss in the world. And I know we spoke about this on our, on our last episode when we had you on. But academic compensation, sure, right? You know, you can't put limits on it. It's not going to change the world of the NCAA. It's not going to change, right? You're not going to have a five-star recruit picking one school over another because of academic compensation. About You can get a full reimbursement on your laptop. It's not that big of a deal. But what is a big deal is when you have justices at the highest court in the land ruling 9-0, and saying stuff in a concurring opinion, which will follow the NCA, at least in my opinion, for the next century, the oh, NCAA yeah. is not above the law. That's it's not it's not binding. You know, it's it's dicta at best. Um, but it's going to follow the NCA everywhere. So I I mean I, I I think this is where you were going with it. But the decision to appeal, I think, in hindsight, is now being crushed. Was that does that something that was uh, maybe a little controversial at the time? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, controversial, probably not. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, there was disagreement on whether or not they should have filed that appeal. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to be right too now. critical on that one because yeah. it's so long ago. I don't even recollect, frankly. But there was certainly some criticism. I thought that, and I think many of my colleagues think that they were going to go after the California bill concurrently with appealing Alston, and they only went with the Alston. And, you know, as recently as 45 days ago, we were hearing from the leadership team that, you know, we were going to win Alston. And uh, I was at a sports lawyers meeting and we went around the room and nobody thought we were going to win the Alston case. <laughs> so, you know, you just wonder where the disconnect is at some point. And frankly, we haven't handled the loss very well. I, you know, they come out with a press release that talks about, you know, well, it's, this is just, a, you know, a little bump in the road. If, you know. just read the press release, yeah. there's a version where you think you won the case. Yeah, NCAA exactly. I'm, I'm looking at that. I'm saying, no, you know, we, not for nothing. A 9-0 victory. And if you work in sports, you know, when you get your butt kicked, you know, you get up, brush the dirt off and, you know, say congratulations. You know, you did a good job. We've lost, you know. No, we, we try to spin it as, oh, it's a narrow little ruling and all this kind of thing. Just makes us look foolish, frankly. Rich, just uh, again, thanks, thanks for jumping back on with us. This is such a hot topic right now, and, and you're just a wealth of knowledge. So definitely appreciate you you jumping back on with us. Going back to the interim policy that the, the Division One Council ha- has released here, you, you kind of referenced the two the two sides of it. You know, schools that have states that have law. They're going to follow whatever the law is you in that hope, state. Right, Michael. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not looking to get arrested, but, you know, you, know, you then, have to follow the state statute, you know. Right, right. And then the states that have not yet passed, it, it was almost like they said, you're, you're free to engage in all name, image, and likeness, no restrictions. And then the caveat that schools in those states can adopt their own policies. Now, the MAC conference covers three states, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. New Jersey has a bill that's been passed that's going to go in effect 2025, but I'm guessing a proposal to to bring that forward to sooner rather than later is is upon us. And then Connecticut has their bill that's passed that I believe it's September by the time that that would be effective. New York is the big unknown right now with the assembly kind of kicking the vote down six months from now. So New York is is a, a big state for, for schools within the MAC conference. Now, going back to the interim policy where schools can adopt their own policies, are these schools coming to the to you and the conference uh, for guidance and advice on what to do to draft these policies? Well, we have our first meeting on the subject later today. We organized our what we call the Committee on Athletic Administration, which is our ADs and SWAs. So we will start the conversation. And I also had a call on uh, Monday with my the executive committee of our MAC Council of Presidents. So I discussed it with them. We will work with the schools on drafting some suggested policies, but we're going to take it slow, frankly. You know, we may have some athletes that are looking to gain some appearance fees for camps and things of that nature, but we're not expecting to see big deals roll in the door on July 1st unlike the A5 conferences where, you know, they're all lined up to announce things this week. So we want to learn from what goes on there. You know, we'll quickly get some idea how this is playing out. We understand what the three statues look like. So those are coming. So we've got to craft something that just will tide us over until those are enacted. And then the schools are going to have to follow those state statutes. So uh, we have the luxury of some time here. We don't have football. So I don't have to deal with the immediacy of that either. Yeah, we're going to be patient and take a look and draft something. But they are looking for guidance. And, uh, and on the other hand, if they want to go off in some direction of their own, you know, that's what they're allowed to do. But you, you run the risk then of not having any, any cover because, you know, you got guidance from your conference or whatever. Right, right. Now, based on what you see regarding this interim policy from the, from the Division One Council, Based, based on what you're seeing, do you feel that these the states that don't have a bill, that they're just leaving it to the, the schools within that state to craft their own policies? Do you feel that those policies are going to be maybe more strict and more liberal? I and mean, are they going to be able to just kind of, I, I don't want to say, you know, free range, but but something of that context, you know, there's the bills that have been passed in other states are 
are not necessarily extremely strict, but they do have regulations and some, you know, allow agents and representation, some might not. Like, what do you feel is kind of the move forward that this Division One Council will vote on? I think it's going to be just the free reign, Michael, with those two little provisions. I don't. I, nobody wants to get sued right now on the heels of Alston. So I think most schools are going to have to look at it, understand you can't have anything that's pay for play. Like, you know, you can't be saying, you know, if you come here, we guarantee you're going to get X amount of NIL rights. So you're going to have to take that directly off out of the out of the. Um, equation as far as the offers to these athletes. Of course, you can show them the litany of what successful athletes are, are implementing on their own, separate from the school. So you can say there's an environment where you have the ability to do NIL rights, but you can't guarantee that they're going to get revenue, nor can you have boosters come in and they say, if you come to school X, you know, I'm going to give you 10,000 a year in NIL rights, you know, so those kind of things because those aren't really amateurism is they are amateurism issues, but they're also recruiting prohibitions and we have other bylaws that protect us on that. So you do have some outer limits in place. They're just not called amateurism anymore. They're in the recruiting space. Other than that, I, I don't know that you want to put a lot of restrictions on them right now. I mean, I also don't think you're responsible for anything that they go out and do because frankly, they're going to end up signing agreements with either agents or third-party vendors that are, you know, putting together sponsors with athletes. And, you know, they may fulfill those. They may not. There may be controversy. They may, you know, you could end up in litigation for, you know, filled uh, duties. So we don't necessarily want to get in the middle of that relationship. And the athletes are also now in the world of having to pay taxes, you know. So it's not that clean for the athletes either. And again, I will only say I'm not... We're going to have athletes that activate around this. I'm sure we're going to have some influencers that are probably pretty good at what they do. But as anybody that's in the space knows, it takes a lot of work to be an influencer. It takes a lot of work to go out and do these endorsement deals. Now, we already have these athletes are already going to school. They're, they're competing in their sports. And the, and the high-profile ones, like our basketball players, are competing. They compete a set amount of time, but they're in you know practice most of the year in one form or another. So how much time they're going to want to put into this, depending on the level of reward that's involved, I don't know. We'll see. You know, we went through this a little bit with the employment regulations about a decade ago, and everybody's saying, oh, everybody wants to be employed. They want to do this and that. And you know what? It turned out teenagers really don't want to work any more than they have to, you know? <laughs> so, I, I, I kind of remember that same feeling when I was their age. So, you know, if you're playing sports in school, dating, whatever, you really want to have a job on top of that all. So it all depends, I guess. So, I'm not too, I mean, I'm just not one of these guys at this point that's running around saying that, you know, the sky's falling. If we, not at our level. I think it's a major problem for the A5 group. Don't get me wrong. And the Big East and others, you know, for us, I don't know. One point I wanted to just bring up, I don't, I don't know if it's going to, this issue is going to solve itself with the federal bill that comes in, but you know, there's a narrative that's going around online that you might be better off right now being a non NIL state and not being bound by state law and just yeah. being bound by this NCA, we'll call this minimalism rules. Um, do you think that there's truth to that narrative that you, you're actually better off at having your politicians having not done anything and now you just have the NCA temporary rules that, you know, likely will go into effect? Well, it just takes one level of compliance off your back, you know. Um, So if you're a major program in one of those states, but you see there all all of a sudden I'm seeing executive orders coming out like Illinois, I think did one in Ohio. Ohio had one. You know, the big 10 states are all trying to catch up here. The SEC states all have statutes now. Besides, And they're uh, they're very, uh, very similar. Yeah, yeah, one, yeah, one state, right? They have enough problems on their hands right now. (laughs) Yeah. So... I think the A5 conferences are trying to influence their states to pass similar regs. So at least everybody's working off something relative uh, to the same rule book. The other major conferences are going to try a similar effort. And then we'll see if, what comes out of Congress. But yeah, I think there's a case to be made. It's probably easier if you're in a non-NLI statute state. You're still going to have problems. And, you know, there's all kinds of other issues, jurisdictional issues, Dan and and I'm sure you guys will get into this at some point. You know, if you live in one state and you and you play in another, 
you know, which which statues are you bound by? I think most people would say where you play, but there's a big case to be made the other way. And as you know, when we if for these high profile athletes, if they're earning wages off of playing games and, you know, they could be taxed by multiple states like the pros at some point. So, See, you know, right. I, I this is the part that I don't think people are, are realizing. Right. Like so people I guess, I, you know, I wanted to have some specific questions for you, but like, you know, on tennis, for example, tennis is probably the tennis or golf are probably good comparisons to this. You know, the NBA, I want to say maybe half, uh, roughly half of your earnings are endorsement based and the other half is salary based because there's a lot of money in the game. Sports like golf and tennis, the lion's share of your earnings are from endorsements. So I don't think people quite realize that there is true potential. If you're going to, you know, some states, just to your point, Rich, like some states allow you to have fair market value and you could, you know, uh, you can have make as much money as you want. And other states have some type of limitations, but we don't really know still what fair market value is. We don't know what the top of that earnings level is. If someone like Roger Federer, right, is at the top of this game, obviously he's been around for 20 years. People know him. He's going to have a higher earning potential than I think anyone could have at the college level. But that's a guy that makes close to nine figures in, in total. I think it's close close to nine figures just on endorsements in any given sure. year. So here's where I wanted to take this. I mean, I hear companies, you know, like Open Doors and Altius that are partnering with uh, some of these schools and this space is, is really blowing up. I know there are people that listen to this podcast as, as much as it might shock some of our listeners that are helping craft the federal legislation right now as, as we speak. So we'll see when that comes down. But I think some of those questions, you know, that I've been trying to grapple with, I know people at, at the higher levels of, of this bill are trying to grapple with something as simple as like, you know, if an athlete makes, just a hypothetical, makes $10 million in a given year, but prior to stepping foot on campus, they were eligible for financial aid and they needed a full scholarship because they didn't have the money. If someone gets $10 million in any given year, question as simple as, should we be taking them off financial aid at this point? Should we be rescinding their scholarship if they can afford it themselves? You know, a lot of these, the public sentiment is very much in favor of these athletes making as much as they can. But on the other side of it, you have to wonder, like, if an athlete is making $10 million, is it fair that the school has to be providing him with financial aid and also giving him a scholarship if, if he doesn't, you know, maybe financially need that money? I don't It'll know. I, I for donations, Dan. Forget about right, Keep your right. scholarship, but I'd like you to, before you get taxed out of all that money, how about making a donation to your your future alma mater? Right. And how no. about, what if it's the same <laughs> amount as the scholarship that you're getting, right? So yeah. the, I, I think the finer points of the bill are being hammered out at the federal level now. Another one that I thought was interesting, Rich, that I'd love your, your thoughts on. I've been getting a lot of calls in it. I'm sure you know any number of attorneys are getting calls in it. But people want to get into this space badly. At the 11th hour, people want to help represent athletes. They want to you know do business deals with them. So I think the rules on who can represent these athletes, like I think all the bills are written in such a way to allow agents, which maybe people didn't expect maybe a year ago at this time. You know, the NFLPA, you know, the Player Association has certified agents. Same with basketball, same with most sports. They have a certified agent for a particular sport. As of right now, there is no, you know, NCAA certified agent. I think the rules generally are if you're a lawyer or if you're, you know, uh, certified by one of these bodies, you can get in. What are your thoughts on on the role of agents moving forward in, in college sports? I'm well, not on top of that, but I thought they had some kind of certification program at one point that might have lapsed. It's, I, I don't follow. It. It's not my area. You know, we're in uh, we don't have those high profile uh, basketball players or football players. So I think they should have representation. I think there's going to be some issues relative to the percentage uh, that's being taken off of those. And I, I think many of the bigger vendors like Open Doors are trying to you know, to make that fairly uniform so people understand it going in. I think it's, we're going to have to just wait and see, Dan. A lot of this is going to be sorted out over the next six months, I think. I think they should have representation. But on the other hand, they can't have those representatives going to coach and say, he needs more playing time. You know, it's not that kind of representation. It's representation for to to provide endorsement deals and other kinds of opportunities. But, you not, know, it's it's funny yeah. when you say that it's a slippery slope. Once you allow yeah. athletes on campus, where does that go? Right? You know, yeah. there's a, I don't know if you watched this, but I was watching recently uh, the Young Rock, the episode, the new show on uh, <laughs> about the Rock about my University of Miami, and they they make a joke that Drew Rosenhaus was just friends with all the players, so he was on campus a lot. So, you know, and that was obviously at a different era of of college sports. But if you allow athletes or agents on campus 
and you will, you know, allow policies like that, maybe that's the fear. And that's always been the fear that, that they're going to have another, we'll say an advocate uh, for playing. Well, you don't want to get closer and closer to that professional status. That's the thing. You know, we, I do really want us to try to keep some type of collegiate model that accommodates what the NLI rights are going to be based on the Alston case and other statutes, but doesn't put us into the ranks of becoming professional sports with agents coming in and trying to manage the system. So I, we'll have to see, Dan. Uh, but it's a new era, and we're going to have to change our business practices. That's what I've been telling people, you know, it's no use whining about what happened. We now have to look forward and try to develop a new system that's going to be able to preserve something of the collegiate model, uh, allow these kind of statutes to take effect and maybe a federal law at some point and just recognize it's what it is. And how do we move on from here? And that's what I don't think we have right now in Indianapolis. I don't think we have any vision of what this is going to look like. And we need to get some people in there that are going to start realizing a way for us to move forward. We just have a new commissioner at the Pac-12. You know, he comes out of the casino, you know, I think it was MGM, you know, who was on his first call the other day. You know, you could just tell he's wondering, well, what have I stepped into here? You know, it's so different than any other industry. So I, I just think we need, we're going to need some fresh faces in there telling us, you know, we got to accept this and move forward in a positive manner and get on with the business running college sports. I just had one follow-up question, and then I want, I want us to transition to, to the Kaplan report here. Just off of the agent, going back to that, coming from, I worked in compliance for a couple of years at Syracuse when I attended law school there, and I know that we needed to do agent reports. So the agents would have to file with the school and register with the school before they were allowed to speak with them, whatever, before that process could start. So I know, I know that had to happen. Also on the end of compliance, I think with name, image, and likeness, this is going to create a pretty hefty burden for compliance offices for for Power Five schools or any school. And you know, most of the smaller schools might have one compliance officer or something like that. But a lot of these bills state that they must report to the school anytime that they have some sort of name, image, and likeness bill in an effort to prevent crossover, right? If the school's Nike, then you don't want an athlete having an underarm. Uh, I'm not sure it's that clear about the crossover. Uh, Some bills say that, I guess. I think uh, most of the bills are requiring a reporting mechanism to the schools. I don't know that the schools have a veto power anymore. Uh, Nothing under the NCAA regs say that. Maybe a couple of the state regs do. I mean, that was the underlying thought going into a much more detailed NIL bill or, or bylaw that didn't get passed. That's, we've, we've shelved that for now. And I think this, many of the schools would like to have that. And they may be able to address it through their scholarship offers. I don't know. They're going to have to look at that. You know, you, you know, in your scholarship offer, you agree, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And, and one of the things you agree is not to have a competing endorsement with anything that your school has. But I, I don't know that they can nix it right off the get-go uh, anymore. And it's going to be interesting times uh, because that does worry the power schools. You know, that's a that could become a huge uh, impact for their revenue stream from uh, sponsorships. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Going back again. So you mentioned it before it was probably the perfect transition here to Kaplan issues coming out of Indianapolis. Hmm. I mean, we have the Kaplan, Hecker and Fink LLP. You know, this law firm was brought on as a as an external review for the equity, the NCAA Title IX issues and equity report. This really sparked after the March Madness tournaments and the discrepancy between the men's and women's basketball tournament. And well, it's not March, March and Madness, Mike. Uh, right off the bat, you're wrong there because March Madness is only for the men. <laughs> true, true. No. That's right. We call it the college women's basketball tournament on the, on the women's side because that's really – that's exciting when yeah. you see that. First, you see that branding, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. I knocked you. No, off no. The game first, there. first tick right there. That's right. That's <laughs> it, it, the discrepancies are very, very lengthy, and that's the first one right out of the gate. So the NCAA and Mark Emmert came out saying that they were going to hire Kaplan to do this equity report. Um, this was, like I said, back in back in I believe March, end of March, and 
what they wanted Kaplan to do was an external review of the gender equity issues on a large scale of all of the NCAA, but really focusing on the discrepancies between the championships of the men's and women's basketball. I'm very much in the weeds on this one, Mike. So we can all spend right, an so hour on this if you want. So take it from take it from here. Well, Kaplan's report is underway. It's it's been moved back on a delivery date to the end of July. Roberta Kaplan is the real deal. She's her firm is in the weeds and digging deep to figure out the inequities that are presented both in San Antonio with the women's uh, championship and with the men's final four in Indianapolis. Last night I was on a I participated as a viewer on a uh, session with the Democratic Women's Caucus where they had Tara uh, Vanderveer from Stanford, who's a reigning champion, obviously, and one of her athletes, and Dawn Staley, who is the Olympic coach and a former you know, uh, champion at South Carolina. And these coaches were speaking to Congresswomen about, and the Congresswomen are listening. And I expect we're gonna probably have hearings sometime in the near future on this whole subject probably after the Kaplan report comes out. So we have some basis for, uh, you know, to see what they're recommending. There's a built-in or baked-in, if you want, uh, inequity in in the system right now. And it just got demonstrated because we were in these bubbles and you could compare side by side what was being done. And the NCAA, you know, they're slow to react to things and social media would be one of those things. And so when the athletes started, putting out TikToks and other types of social media, they didn't realize how quickly that spread, you know, showing, you know, the men's weight rooms in uh, Indianapolis with all this equipment and space and everything else. And, you know, the yoga mats and, uh, and, you know, the weight bars that they were putting out and the dumbbells they were putting out for the women, you know, they started showing the pre-packaged meals that the women were getting compared to what the men's setup was. Tara last night talked about the fact that they had two different kinds of COVID testing. The men had the, the you know, the antigen and the, and the women had some other lesser tests. So there's a whole litany of these things. And it just, it exploded on the NCAA and it took them a little bit to get in front of it. And then Mark made some promises and then they came up with a, you know, the, uh, what I call the Indianapolis two-step, let's appoint a commission so we can look at this. But in this case, they hired a third-party law firm, which I actually think in retrospect was a good decision. And we'll see what comes out of it, but it's much broader than just what happened in those events. And we talked about the branding with the final fours, which by the way, was filed originally as being applied to men and women, but it's been limited to the D1 men's tournament by staff, but not by anybody else. And the broadcast deals, you know, Turner CBS does a wonderful job generating huge revenue for the NCAA, but it's all on the back of the men's tournament. And as part of that deal, they have the rights to all sponsorships. And the deals are structured in such a way that you have to buy into the corporate uh, partner program for CBS Turner before you can even think about trying to build a an activation around the women's tournament. So there's so many things. And the final straw was they made the mistake of saying, you know, women's basketball is the biggest money loser, you know, and they use that. And it's offensive to women's basketball coaches and athletes. And it's not necessarily true because it's the way they handle their accounting practices, including, again, this corporate partners program where the men get all the credit for all the revenue and nothing gets allocated to the women. So how else, how would you ever be in a positive cash flow if that's the system? So that's why as part of the Kaplan report, you're going to see evaluation coming out of another third party firm on the value of women's basketball in the broadcast space. And I think it's going to be surprising to a lot of people how valuable it is. And, and women's basketball is not a big money loser and it's got great growth potential. And by the way, there are about five or six other sports that could activate as well if they had the chance. And we've seen all kinds of issues this year because women's basketball and sparked softball to get on social media and, and volleyball. And, you know, I had a Quinnipiac University women's golf team was in down in Louisiana and their regional was canceled. And, you know, but he thought that maybe there was a better way of handling that. So, you know, it's just there's a lot of inequities on how women's sports gets handled. And I think hopefully either Congress will step in and give a little bit more guidance to the NCA or the NCA will just figure it out and get moving on this. 
So you said Roberta Kaplan is she's in the weeds on this. Her firm's doing an excellent job. If anybody wants to go look on their website, they did create a website called NCAA gender equity review.com. And it explains a lot of what we're talking about right here, as well as there's a comment section there. And if you have a, an incident or a report that you want to give notice to this firm as a part of their report, please go ahead and do that. I think today, I think I saw a number there they've received from just from the comments alone, maybe over 1500, just from off of that, it could be more, I, I bet it's more. Uh, now I, I, I can I tell you, Mike, they've been interviewing, I've been interviewed twice both yeah. on my role on the Women's Basketball Oversight Committee, but also as a commissioner separately. So on the bottom of that website, it, there is a little, a little line, probably the last two lines, where it said that Mark Emmer agreed that the report will be made public. Now, as a part of what you were referencing to in the Democratic Women's Caucus, a quote from Don Staley said, let's be honest, this is the NCAA. We need to trust but verify. The way this investigation is set up, the NCAA is in the investigator's client, and due to attorney-client privilege, we may never know the full story. They will release what they want us to know, not what we need to know. So I, I want to get your thoughts on that and whether or not this report has any intention of being public. Well, you know, Dawn's from Philly. I'm from Jersey. We're, we're cynical by nature. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, it's going to be public, and there's been a lot of pressure put on the NCAA to make it public and transparent. The public is one thing, but it's got to be transparent. There's got to be full disclosure of what went on. Jack DeJoy, who's the president of uh, Georgetown and chair of the Board of Governors, was on with the commissioners in Chicago a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And I asked him, you know, what's happening with this? And, and he has promised transparency both in the Board of Governors operations beyond this particular subject, because there's things related to Emirates contract and other issues that we don't, never quite get the uh, full story on. But yeah, we need full disclosure. And, and that's why Congress may have to step in with hearings, because they can then subpoena the documents that you know the NCAA is trying to shield, which I would suspect include the CBS Turner deal and ESPN contract, you know, there's some contracts they just as soon keep uh, behind a, you know, some type of shield. So we'll see. But I, I think Roberta's going to do a good job and then we'll see what happens. Uh, and who knows? Uh, the equity proponents might find things in there they don't like either. You know, <laughs> there may be some findings that don't really support some of the theories we have. But well, uh, that's why we're having a third party do it. So we'll see. This is where we wanted to eventually take the conversation. And, uh, you know, we want to be mindful of your time. We could keep you here all day. This is a, this is a hot <laughs> deposition seat over here. Here's where I, I think the people are kind of curious, right? And we kind of spoke about this in our, our last time with you as well. The pandemic, I, I think, opened up a lot of people's eyes to who really and truly holds the power to either play sports, when they want to do it, whatnot. So my personal view is that the conferences hold a lot more power, you know, than, than I think people realize. I think the pandemic did show us that. So even um, you alluded to it earlier with your with one of your answers, you know, maybe about half the states in our country have NIL laws on the books, but I don't know, 95% of the Power Five conferences or Power Five schools are with, included within that 50%. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, in, in a long-term view, we're obviously seeing a changing of, you know, I guess a changing of powers, at, at least in some sense of what the NCA is, is supposed to do with their role is, you know, if they're if you're asking the federal government to come in, obviously the NCA is losing one level of compliance because the federal law is going to preempt state law. It's going to preempt the NCA's law. So what do you think the NCA's role is, you know, you know, for the next decade and how is that going to change from what it had been uh, previously? Well, they have to chart a new course for sure. Uh, you know, they're always going to have a regulatory role. Amateurism may be out of, out of their control but there are going to be elements recruiting and other things that need to be regulated and playing seasons and competition rules and all those types of things. But, you know, the conferences are, because we're only 32 of us, it's just a lot easier to talk. You know, we can have meetings and talk seriously without trying to manage 360 different schools and everything else. So it just lends itself to being able to push certain viewpoints within the NCA when you have those discussions. Now, the A5 don't agree on almost anything most of the time. They didn't really agree completely on this NIL thing until the last minute. So, uh, you know, their consensus building takes some time as well. But they're at least working with a very small group and they ultimately usually get there. I think long term, 
the NCA is either going to have to restructure itself. It's too big a bureaucracy. It's too compliance oriented. And, and get back to the business of championships and broadcasting and the things they do well and try to restructure how they handle the, some of these other responsibilities. Or else, you know, there's no saying that we, can't, we won't go to a post-NCA period at some point where some other group comes in and does it. You know, the college football playoff system has been managed outside the NCA now for years. and It's been very successful. It's not to say that you can't do other sports that way, too. So I don't know. They're going to need a change in leadership in the next decade. You know, they're going to have to get some people that are uh, ready to deal with the realities of the 21st century. And we'll see. It's going to be an interesting period. I'm not sure I'll be a part of it. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm 34 years into this business. If I make it to 36 or so, it'll be a good run, you know, but there, there'll be a time when there's going to be a change and it'll probably be a dramatic change at some point. Well, we really want to be sensitive to your time here, Rich. We appreciate you coming on. You know, obviously we want the NCAA to be transparent, but we really appreciate your transparency here with, with coming on for a second time. And, and uh, I don't know, Dan, do you have anything else? No, I, I just want to point out 34 years young in the industry, Rich. You can do another, you can do another decade here. I, I we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I might not do it in this position full time. I might find another role for myself, but eh, it's good to be. I like being involved. It keeps you young, frankly. I have a young staff and I like living over that. So uh, appreciate uh, being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Rich. Thanks, Thanks Rich. Bye now, guys. Okay. So that was Mac Conference Commissioner Rich Enzor. Second time we've had him on the podcast. I don't know about you, Dan, but that was incredible. I feel like we could talk to him for a few hours. He's just a wealth of knowledge and He's just open to any question. He, he's really not guarded in any anything that he says or any of his responses. He really has a passion for this, and he's he wants name, image, and likeness to move forward. And we really dove deep into to what's going to happen in the future of NCAA and with college athletes being able to profit off it. And he sounds like he's very, very deep in the weeds for the Kaplan report too, with the equity report that's going to be coming out. And he said that he's been interviewed a couple of times and he, he says that Kaplan is, that the firm is doing a really great job with that investigation. And we'll just have to see whether or not that whole report will be made public. My favorite thing about having Rich on the show, and, and, and he said it, you said it, He's an open book, right? And you don't have to, and why, why do we have Rich on the podcast? I follow Rich again on, on social media. He's on Twitter. He's a good follow. He's at Mac Commish, M-A-A-C Commish. And I follow him on LinkedIn. He's just at Rich Enzor. He shares some, some articles that are very critical of the NCA. It's almost as if, like, I, I mean, I wouldn't otherwise think that a commissioner of a conference could to be so transparent in their thoughts, but you heard Rich in his own words. There was definitely some disagreement in the NCA strategies on a couple levels, right? Especially on Rich is very passionate about the, the disparity between uh, the men's and women's sports. But I'm not sure if it was him, if it was someone else. But there seemed to be some disagreement on the strategy, the legal strategy in court, uh, even even with NCA versus Alston. So you know, we're not going to push him. We don't. I don't want to put him in a bad spot. But you know, Rich is Rich tweeted this yesterday. This is from uh, he's retweeting Steve Berkowitz. So uh, this is the tweet that Rich you know is sending out. Senators Richard Blumenthal and Cory Booker issue statement on NCA Council vote that says in part, quote, this last minute scramble to meet the standards set by the states is too little too late. It's time for Congress to act, including on enforceable health and safety standards. So Rich is kind of indirectly saying, you know, he, he was hoping the NCA would have acted a little bit sooner. I don't. And he said on the podcast, right, I don't understand. You know, I, I quote him. He said, you wonder where the disconnect is between the NCA's legal strategy and the NCA and, and reading the room. So. You know, Rich, Rich has been around. He's, he's the elder statesman in the room. I mean that from experience level, you know, and just from he's, he's been around the longest. He's seen this the most. So Rich can say things that I don't and maybe, uh, you know, he was talking about the new Pac-12 commissioner that I don't think he, the, the new Pac-12 commissioner can get away with, but Rich can get away with. So, you know, he's in a really advantageous position and at the MAC level. He can see how the, the bigger boys, well, he keeps saying the A5, you also know them as the Power 5 conferences are, are dealing with this. But yeah, I, I just think it's it's enlightening to hear Rich speak like this. Sometimes, you know, and this is us saying this, obviously Rich is not Rich saying it, but I'm not sure he necessarily disagree. You know, the Senate NIL hearings that, that we saw on June 10th with Mark Emmert, I don't know. I, I think it was a lot of hot air that we got. We didn't get a lot of substance from Mark Emmert on, on levels. He just kept kind of, I don't know. We'll say it in political speak or in lawyer talk. I don't want to. I don't want to be besmirch the profession, but he wasn't saying a lot of substance. And you have someone like Rich on here, 
who doesn't give you anything but substance. He, he was very passionate about these issues. And, and it's, it's important to have people like Rich at the helm of these conferences to give it a concrete directive of where to go, who's not afraid to speak up and give an opinion. So too, too often we have people that are in these positions of power that don't say anything. They just all PR speak, it's all PR babble, and they don't really say their thoughts on a particular topic, whether they agree or disagree. So Rich, I think, is, a, is an enlightening voice in this room. And I, you know, we, we have people, Rich, and, Rich would be, uh, we'd love to have Rich on the podcast just for his position. But the fact that he can speak so eloquently and so passionately about some of these topics, he's just a phenomenal guest. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And he's willing to do a third, like after maybe say the Kaplan report comes out and the Senate has more hearings on the Title IX and equity and the gender discrepancies between, you know, D1 sports. I'm sure he's willing to jump back on too, based on what he's hearing on the inside from his, all of his meetings and and the investigation report and what his take is on it. So very, very glad we, we were able to get him again. And hopefully we'll continue to get some more insight from him going forward. You know, it's, it's a busy week. I know, um, Mike, and I'm sure you're seeing it as well. We'll, we'll probably find t- another episode to discuss these. But, you know, the Tyler Skaggs lawsuit, Los Angeles Angels sued for wrongful death from Tyler Skaggs overdose from two years ago. The Kobe Bryant, you know, settlement that just occurred. You know, the Blackhawks, Chicago Blackhawks, we'll say sexual, sexual harassment investigation. There's a lot of booming topics in sports. So if you're coming new uh, to the podcast, we invite you to subscribe. We cover uh, the issues of sports and law once a week. And if you are an old school, an OG listener of Content Detrimental, we implore you to give us a five-star rating on uh, the podcast app because that always helps improve our exposure. So yeah, this podcast has been continuing to grow. It's a really exciting time for sports law. You know, I guess just a, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to go on television last week and go on all these different radio shows. But this is not normal. It's not normal to have this much of a boom in, in sports law and to have these, these type of issues. So if you're interested in getting into the space, which I know if you're listening to this, most likely you are, you can reach out to Mike, reach out to myself, to Dan, uh, to Taryn. We're happy to, to lead you along the path. And so with that said, Dan Wallach, who will be uh, rejoining us for the next episode, is at Wallach Legal, myself, Dan Lust, at Sports Law Lust. Mike is at Mike underscore son of underscore law. Yep. Is it different on one of the channels? It's, it's slightly different on one of them. Instagram is just Mike son of the law. Yeah, Mike. Twitter was different because I, I had to put an underscore. I couldn't just do Mike, son of law. You got to be consistent here. Don't pull a Stephanie. Okay. And Stephanie will rejoin us at some point studying for the bar. And Taryn is on a West Coast road trip. So it was way too early for him. And the show is at Con Detrimental. So for, for the Conduct Detrimental family, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Wow, wow.